Hello, this is Verla Forte of your Outside Mindset Show, where I shine a light on aging adults who may have a chronic illness and who are taking back their outside mindsets by looking or going outside to spend time close to trees, shrubs, and plants. I started this podcast for two reasons. I want to help people to recognize that going outside is not just a nice thing to do, but it can save your life. And I want to give you practical tips to live longer, prevent dementia, and control your chronic illness if you have one. If this sounds good to you, welcome home. Dr. Ellen Langer is a professor in the psychology department at Harvard University. Her numerous academic honors include four Distinguished Scientists Awards and the Liberty Science Genius Award. Her many books written for academic and popular audiences include Mindfulness, The Power of Mindful Learning, and On Becoming an Artist, and Counterclockwise, Mindful Health and the Power of Possibility. The citation for the APA Distinguished Contribution Awards reads in part, her pioneering work revealed the profound effects of increasing mindful behavior and offers new hope to millions whose problems were previously seen as unalterable and inevitable. Ellen Langer has demonstrated repeatedly how our limits are of our own making. Paul Bates of the Max Planck Institute for Human Development and Education in Berlin says, Ellen Langer not only challenges us to reach for our untapped reserves, she also shows us how this is possible. Welcome, Dr. Langer. Thank you. Thank you for being with us here today. Your work changed my life at a time in my 60s when I needed it the most. I base my book, Take Back Your Outside Mindset, on your mindfulness and mindset studies. And I hear from readers and listeners every day that your work helps them to see things differently. That's wonderful. Would you please start with your story regarding mindfulness? What is my story regarding mindfulness? (laughs) I have many stories. So um, if you're asking me where it all began or what mindfulness is as I see it, um, I can go on endlessly. So direct me a little more. Um, well, uh, what is your definition of mindfulness? Okay. So mindfulness, as we study it, is the simple process of actively noticing new things. That's all it is. It's amazingly simple, but the consequences of this are enormous. So when you're noticing new things, that puts you in the present, makes you aware of context, and that active noticing is the essence of engagement. So we find that when people are actively noticing, um, they become more energized, and this active noticing is literally and figuratively enlivening. Now, many people... Uh, think when they hear the word mindfulness that it's meditation. Meditation, while fine, is not mindfulness. Meditation is a process you go through to achieve post-meditative mindfulness. Mindfulness, as we study it, is much more direct, not better or worse, but just more direct. And we've done research on uh, this act of noticing for over 40 years, and we find that 
as I said already, it's literally and figuratively enlivening that when you're being mindful in this act of noticing, people find you more attractive, see you as charismatic, see you as trustworthy. The products that you produce bear the imprint of this mindfulness. So it's good for your health, for your relationships. Um, 40 years is a long time. So there are very few um, outcomes that, that we haven't assessed. It's in general, it's amazing because it's so simple. And another way of understanding it is that people think they know. And when you think you know, you don't pay any attention. But we can't know because everything is always changing and everything looks different from different perspectives. So when you start noticing things about the things you thought you knew, you come to realize, gee, you didn't know it as well as you thought you did. And then your attention naturally goes there. And again, in this act of noticing, you're engaged in what you're doing. So it feels good and couldn't be better for you. Wonderful. Thank you. Dr. Ellen Langer, would you please tell us about your study in the nursing home with plants? Sure. This was um, a study that uh, started a lot of the research that I'm still engaged in. Uh, what we did was to give people, you know, I had gone to different nursing homes and I was visiting somebody in a nursing home and people were just staring blankly at walls. There, there wasn't anything going on and it was, it was very sad. And so I went to, with Judy Roden, to a nursing home to run the study that I'll describe in a moment. And I was speaking to the director of the nursing home and he said, no, no, people at his nursing home are very active. They run a store, they have a cocktail party. He went on and on. And I thought, well, gee, I guess my impression of what goes on in nursing homes is simply wrong. Um, then we went and explored the nursing home. And no, the people he was talking about, maybe two or three of the residents and the other 60 or 70 were not engaged. And so what we did was uh, divide the uh, people in the nursing home into two groups, where one group was uh, given the comparison group, the tender loving care that they were used to. And the other group, the group to whom we were going to give a sense of control and turned out to be a mindful control over their environment, were given choices to make. And you can't go into an establishment and just change the balance of power. No one is going to let you to let you do that. So the choices that we were able to give people were very small choice of if they wanted to see a movie and if they did on which night they wanted to see it. We gave them a plant, choose which plant you want and told them that it was their responsibility to to take care of the plant. Um, and then we, we gave them essentially a pep talk saying that they're capable of and should be making, you know, all of the decisions that they used to make. If they want to visit with people inside the nursing home, outside. so, and it was hard to construct these choices because in fact, they didn't have that many, but nevertheless, um, they seem to feel more, uh, they seem to be responsive to that. And what we found is, uh, by the way, the other group was given a plant but uh, and given the movie, but they were told when to see the movie and that the nurses would water the plants for them. And what we found initially was that people were more active and alert and felt more control, and that was good. The important thing is we went back 18 months later and found those who were given these mindful choices actually live longer. Um, twice as many people in the tender loving care group had died as in the mindful choice group. So that was the beginning of a lot of my research on health because 
And it was just sort of amazing making these simple little choices. How could that result in such dramatic findings? And we're still trying to answer that question. I think that study also ushered in a lot of the mind-body medicine uh, that people take for granted now. There was a time that the medical world um, paid no attention to one's psychology. And now most realize um, its importance. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful study. What, what is mindset? Well, mindset is what keeps you from being mindful. You know, you think you know, you're told something. Uh, for example, one of my favorites is, um, you know, that I was taught uh, horses don't eat meat. And so I have a mindset, horses don't eat meat. I was at this horse event and this man asked me, could I watch his horse for him because he was going to get his horse a hot dog? Well, I know horses don't eat meat. So I thought that's ridiculous, but I said, sure. He came back with the hot dog and the horse ate it. And it was at that moment, as I recall, that everything changed for me, realizing that all the things I knew could be wrong in some context so that you can't take anything for granted. You need to tune in. So the mindset is when we think we know, and when we think we know, again, we don't pay any attention and things are constantly changing. So for example, most of what you're taught, you're taught in a way that leads you to believe you know, and to have some absolute understanding of things. Um, If you ask people, older people especially, uh, you're traveling in a car on ice and the car starts to skid, what do you do? And most of them will say you gently pump the brakes. Well, that made sense before there were anti-lock brakes. Now that we have anti-lock brakes, what you need to do is firmly hit the brake. So what was good for safety at time one, uh, time two is now actually dangerous. So we don't want to let our mindsets rule our behavior. We want to, we want to be there. If we're going to do it, we should be there while we're doing it. Perfect. And then there's something that I use all the time, and it's when you say, when something happens to you that you don't like, like for right now, for example, I'm looking at potential parking lot plans over my woodland path, or when I'm anticipating a disease symptom like pain or fatigue, I use that set of questions. Could you talk about that? Sure. I'm not sure uh, exactly what you're referring to, because I say, I have many one-liners that I'm fond of. Oh, and wow. uh, so one of them that's probably what you're getting at is no worry before it's time. But another that is also useful is to ask yourself, is it a tragedy or an inconvenience? That's because it. Mo- most of what upsets us, um, uh, when you look closely at it, it's sort of so what, you know, not difficult to cope with. We let little things uh, irritate us. And uh, then what happens is whatever the thing was that uh, caused us dismay, we still have that and we have uh, a set of feelings that's not positive. So we're doubling our uh, misery by worrying. And and I I use that one that says, you know, what's the, is it true? What's the worst that can happen? Yeah. And if the worst does happen, are there opportunities? There? Yeah, and it's not just, I, I think that people, um, these are, again, those mindsets that you were talking about. People are brought up in a world, almost everybody, but luckily not everybody, to believe that things in and of themselves are good or bad. 
and uh, things, consequences, behavior, nothing, nothing has uh, a valence attached to it without our uh, framing it, attaching the valence to it. Nothing is good, nothing is bad, nothing is anything until we make it so. And so what happens is that, you know, people will say that, yeah, there are always good and bad things to everything. But what they mean by that is if, let's say there are 10 things um, and six of them are bad, four of them are good. So on balance, it's bad. But the fact of the matter is that each and everything itself is simultaneously good and bad. All right. And so since it, it's both well, neither good nor bad, but any bad can be seen as good or good as bad. And when you recognize that, you can sit back and just let things be. You know, if you and I go out to lunch and the food is delicious, wonderful. If you and I go out to lunch and the food is awful, wonderful. I, I won't eat as much and I won't gain weight. Um, so that uh, it's it's much, you know, people right now chase the good and run from the bad. So they're controlled by these mindsets they have about consequences. When you recognize that the consequences is only what you make of it, uh, then you don't need to be reactive anymore. And life just becomes simpler. Right, right. And so that's that concept of universal uncertainty too? Yeah, well, the thing, yes. The, so when I talk about universal uncertainty, people, you know, we can't know because everything is always changing. And everything looks different from different perspectives. Uncertainty is the rule. It's not the exception. Now, when people recognize uncertainty, they tend to um, be stressed by it. And part of that, you know, so if you ask me a question and I don't know the answer, um, I can feel, I can pretend that I know the answer because I'm afraid to look like I don't know. So I make a personal attribution for uncertainty, saying that I don't know, maybe you know, and now I have to feel less than you in some way. But because everything is changing, nobody really knows. And when you recognize that and you make a universal attribution for uncertainty, not knowing is fine. In fact, not knowing is good because then it motivates trying to know and becoming more mindful with all of the benefits we've already stated. Yeah, wonderful. And just finally, the um, um, back to to noticing is that I, I find that if I'm out um, walking and I get a pain in my hip or something like that, I, I notice it and I think I'm going to notice this in five minutes and see if it's here or there. And yeah. that's from your work too. I know that. Yeah, that's the, I'm glad you brought that up. Verilla. Thank you. That we have a lot of work, um, many, many studies now on what we call attention to symptom variability. And that's really just a fancy way of saying being mindful, noticing changes. And what happens is when people have some dread diagnosis or even small ailments, they tend to only notice when they have the symptom. So let's say pain. You notice when you're in pain, when you're not in pain, you just go about being, then you're in pain again and you notice it. So they think that they're always in pain. Nobody is always anything and certainly not to equal measure. So what we do across many studies, many diseases, is to contact people at random times throughout the day and simply ask them, how do you feel now? And is it better or worse than before and why? And as a result of that, 
you know, your first thing is you, if we did it with pain, you'd say, yeah, you're not in pain all the time. So you'd immediately feel better. When you start thinking about, well, why now am I in more or less pain than I was a moment before? Uh, that search is mindful. And as we've already said, that's good for your health. And if you're looking for a solution, you're more likely to find it. And this is true for depression, stress. Uh, we have data with chronic pain, multiple sclerosis, ALS. Um, we're doing it now with Parkinson's stroke. I mean, lots of um, big disorders. And for the ones we've already studied, it seems to it seems to work, and it's very nice because it doesn't require medical intervention, and there are no negative side effects. Um, so the, the main thing is the takeaway is that health requires recognizing when things are better, mm -hmm. as, as you were saying uh, that uh, you did. And then if you ask why, you know, if you knew, if you felt you were stressed all the time, and then you saw, gee, well, you're not really stressed all the time. And you start looking for when you stress. And you say, ah, when I'm interviewing Ellen Langer, I'm stressed. Well, then the solution is simple. Don't interview me. You know, so sometimes the solution is very easy. Sometimes it's hard, you know, that to see that, well, it's um, three o'clock in the afternoon when, you know, it's like vision. We'll use that as an example that I don't think people should reach for their eyeglasses. Um, they go to the doctor and you get an eye test, which is a ridiculous thing to look at um, letters out of any meaningful context. And then to conclude, that's the way you see all day long. Um, but if you did this attention to symptom variability, when is it when you have difficulty seeing, you might notice that it's at three o'clock in the afternoon. And then instead of putting your glasses on, maybe the thing to do is to have an energy bar, take a nap or, or go outside for a walk. Uh -huh. um, and, um, you know, so many there, but to find out that it's three o'clock in the afternoon requires a little more work than just noticing that Ellen Langer makes you stressed. <laughs> anyway, so be it. No, I, I find that very, very helpful and actionable and, and so interesting. Um, thank you. Thank you for yeah. that. My uh, pleasure. Um, would you be able to talk to us about our mindsets on aging, please? Sure. Um, most people believe that um, as you get old, you fall apart. And that's grossly overstated. And so what happens is that because you think you're going to fall apart, that when something goes wrong, uh, you jump to the conclusion, oh, that's the end game. You know, if you were 20 years old and you hurt your wrist, you'd fix your wrist. If you're 80 years old and you hurt your wrist, you say, well, what do you expect? You know, as you get old, you fall apart. So then you don't take the steps to fix your wrist and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, people think, have mindsets that when you're old, uh, you become forgetful. Well, you know, the amount of forgetting is grossly overstated, um, except in very rare cases. And people forget that they were forgetful when they were young. You know, I give exam, I teach Harvard undergraduates, so these are the best students in the world. I give an exam, and believe me, everybody does not get an A on the exam. Why? Because they forgot. But forgetting when you're young doesn't, you know, uh, doesn't scare you. It's just, okay, so you forgot. So next time you'll do something different to try to remember. Uh, you're 75 years old and you forget and you start worrying, oh my goodness, um, is dementia setting in? And then you organize yourself differently, which makes life less meaningful. 
Um, so there, we have many views of, of old that work against us. There are things, you know, even for people who are just a, who retire or not even retire, we can take an academic, use myself as an example. So when you're young, you know, you're publishing like crazy and then you get to a certain point, you have tenure, you're either famous, you're not famous, whatever the case may be. And one more paper is, is not likely to change your life. So you're not publishing quite as much now, but for good reason, because you don't want to, not that you're not able to. Then you go to a conference with all these young upstarts. And if you, if you forget that you made the decision that you wanted to um, uh, wait for more gems before you rush to press, so to speak, um, you'd end up feeling bad about yourself. You know, we have, um, I mean, things, we change our values frequently. And if you don't recognize that your behavior is changing because your values have changed, and then you compare yourself to people who have different values, you can come up with the wrong conclusion. So another thing is that very often behavior that's reasonably evolved can look like behavior that's not evolved at all. So for example, um, you have young kids are uninhibited, then adults become uh, socialized, so they're inhibited. And then hopefully at some point in your life, you become disinhibited, where you say, why do I care if I have a little spaghetti sauce on my shirt? You know, you don't have to hide and feel insecure all day. And that, um, but what happens is the people who are inhibited misunderstand you and they think that you're behaving like a child when you're more sophisticated. It's not, you know, it's not that you don't know the rule, it's that you choose not to use the rule, behave according to the rule at this particular time. Your behavior becomes more context dependent. At any rate, um, there are lots of ways that uh, people as they age um, behave based on what they assume to be true when they were young. You know, when you're young and you're told old people, I don't know, old people become forgetful. You're not old. You don't care. So then when you do become old, it doesn't occur to you to question it. And uh, so those are the mindsets, the premature cognitive commitments, as I wrote about it in the 70s, that um, we need to we need to be careful of. And if if I'm not taking up too much of your time, could you please tell us about the, that 70s study counterclockwise? Yes. Um, and this is a famous study. I can say that it's famous because it turns out that there's an episode of The Simpsons that actually describe it. <laughs> so <laughs> if The Simpsons go to Havana. Anyway, um, we have... Um, I have this theory of mind-body unity, which says mind-body, these are just words. Let's put the two back together. And then wherever we put the mind, we're necessarily putting the body. And so we've done lots of uh, research testing this. The very first one was a counterclockwise study. We were going to take old men and see if elderly men, see if we could put their minds back in time and see how that affected uh, their bodies. So what we did was we retrofitted um, a monastery, a timeless monastery, to 20 years earlier. And uh, we were going to have um, old men live there for a week as if they were their younger selves. 
as if they were their 20 year old younger selves. So they would be talking about the past in the present tense, all of the icons, magazines, TV shows, everything was from 20 years earlier. We had a comparison group that um, uh, was going to spend the same a week in the same location. However, for them, what they were doing was reminiscing. So they knew now was now and then was then. So, um, but uh, they were people who were going to be spending a week in a novel environment. And as we've already said, novelty is promotes mindfulness. So they were also going to improve. But it turned out they didn't improve as much as those who were embodying their younger selves. What happened was uh, they became stronger, their memory improved, um, their hearing improved, their vision improved, and they looked noticeably younger. So it was, it was very startling and very exciting because it suggests that uh, by changing the way we think about things, we can exert an enormous control over our um, health and well-being. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, there's a phrase I use for worry when I'm being referred to another specialist or I'm waiting for test results. And I think it's, don't worry before it's time. Yeah, Is that No worry before it's time. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I find that really good. Um, finally, do you have any final tips for our listeners? Um, well, I have so many, I know, but you know, I would say that, uh, this, uh, concept this being mindful by active noticing, which relies on our realizing that we just don't know. And so if you don't know, you find out and that finding out is good for you. Uh, active noticing new things, notice the trees outside, you, you walk outdoors, what is different from the day before, you're indoors, what's different about the person you may live with or the food that uh, is in the refrigerator. And this noticing feels good and it turns out it's energy begetting, not consuming. And um, it leads us to be literally and figuratively um, enlivened. And it's, it's so simple that I can't see any reason why people wouldn't do it. Um, I think that the, the best tip is perhaps when people are stressed or um, uh, being judgmental of themselves or other people, and they recognize um, that um, those negative thoughts are, again, events are neither positive nor negative. It's a function of the views we take of them. Events aren't stressful. What's, again, stressful is the view, and views are uh, under our control. And um, if we use a simple rule, this is one of the, for me, one of the things that I came to that's been so important, uh, and I keep writing about it, is that to recognize that behavior makes sense from the actor's perspective or else the actor wouldn't have done it. And so every time you're annoyed with yourself or somebody else, if you say, well, uh, what's another way of understanding that? So you may be annoyed at me because I'm gullible, but that's because from my perspective, I'm being trusting. I might be annoyed at you because you're so inconsistent, but that's because you're being flexible and so on. And for every negative description, there's an equally potent but oppositely balanced alternative. And so 
um, by doing even just these, these two things, actively noticing new things, and when something does happen, recognizing that you can turn it on its head so you don't, you're, you're not required to suffer from it, I think will uh, leave people uh, to be in a good place. Oh, that's so lovely. Oh, thank you. So what's next for you? Or are you just... Oh, I just keep going. <laughs> you know, uh, every, every other day I get you know, five new ideas. I need an army of researchers to help me with all of it and you know, to see if, which ones are true or not. We're still you know, pursuing lots of the health work. Um, I'm now, um, I've got a new program where we're trying to transform middle school. Um, I have a new theory of mindful economics. And so then it depends on my colleagues, my postdocs, um, my students as to in which direction I get pulled. But um, uh, oh. life is good. There's always something that's exciting for me. Oh, it's just beautiful, beautiful and unique work. And it helps so many of us. And even getting that idea of getting trapped by disease categories is just so helpful. Yeah. So, and that fixed thinking. So thank you so much for your, for your time today, Dr. Ellen Langer. Thank you. No, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. So listeners, um, please check out Dr. Ellen Langer's work. Um, mindfulness it's a great book i have the hard copy and i go to it often counterclockwise mindful health and the power of possibility on becoming an artist reinventing yourself through mindful creativity and the power of mindful learning all great and please check out my book and workbook take back your outside mindset live longer prevent dementia and control your chronic illness and in both there's a long chapter there on dr langer's work that shows you how you can use her beautiful questions to just shift your perspective and mindset just a little and what the possibilities are when you do that so for a complete transcript of this episode please visit my website treesmendes.com and listeners thank you for listening to the end as dr langer says choose to look at things in new ways by actively noticing new things things you thought you already knew and as ellen langer reminds us things are subtly changing all the time and as langer says noticing new things feels good and when we're noticing new things we're more likely to find solutions it's easy and fun and exciting for ourselves and as Dr. Langer says, finally, when you're mindful, others become mindful. And it's contagious. It spreads. And this is a good thing because we all need a little more of your outside mindset. Thank you for listening and bye for now. All right. Good luck with this, Verla. <laughs>